This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. You may be listening here at WAGP or live streaming through the internet. We live stream 24-7 at WAGP.net. But this, for the next hour, is an opportunity for you that have questions to call us directly at 843-525-1859. If you have a question about God's Word, a passage you're studying, trying to see how it applies to your life, your marriage, your ministry, uh, you can call, you can go on the air live, or as many people do, they simply email us directly here into the studio. We get email questions from different parts of the country, sometimes from foreign countries, and we do our best to respond. And when we do respond, we typically email you back and let you know that your question was answered. We know many people are at work during the day and are unable, and it would be unprofessional to have your radio on. Uh, So you can always uh, submit a question and listen to the answer later on. So again, the local number, 843-525-1859, or the email is tbl, that's for the Bible line, tbl at net. Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started here. All right, Pastor, I believe we've got a live caller standing by. Let me go to them now. Uh, let's go ahead and hit them. Good morning, you're on the Bible line. What is your question? It's not a question, sir. It's um, word of prophecy. First of all, let me introduce myself. Am I being heard clearly? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, go ahead. I, okay. I don't usually take words of prophecy, but if you have a question, I'll take a question. Okay, well, I just want to say this. I called this, this Bible line some time ago and asked a question, and it was not answered. That's the same question. Okay, I tell me what your question was. The question, when I asked the question, you didn't give me a chance to expand on it. So I'm asking you this morning to, to please do that. Okay, go ahead. Ask the question again. I, You know, sometimes uh, uh, people hang up and you get half a question. Well, and, okay, go I ahead. Go ahead. Tell me what your question is again. Let me see if I can respond My to it. My question was this, and the brother called in the same question some time ago, asking about when Jesus was on earth, did he carry a weapon? And that question was asked to you, and you told me to go, go somewhere into but I didn't because I didn't need, need to do that because Jesus Christ never carried a weapon. Rick, did, and, that, do you remember that question? I don't, I don't ever remember that question. I don't think that's ever been asked in the Bible line because that I would asked, be— I asked you that question, did Jesus Christ carry a weapon? Okay, well, l- let me respond. Let me respond. All right, let me respond. No, he didn't. <laughs> it's very simple. He did not carry a weapon. But was he against his disciples carrying weapons? No, because he gave instructions in the gospel— about their carrying a sword. And uh, listen, uh, there are times when even preachers travel uh, where they needed protection, and God gave his uh, 
his disciples some instructions, sell your cloak, buy a sword, he said in Luke twenty two thirty six. So he wasn't against people protecting themselves, not in the least bit. So um, let me just affirm that. Now, again, sometimes people ask a question and they dictate it, and I get it that way. But I'm glad you asked on the air live, and the answer is no. There's no record of Jesus Christ ever carrying a weapon of any kind. But was he against self-defense? Clearly not. And if you want to study this in detail, I preached a sermon that is online at communitybiblechurch.us. It's called God's Guns and Capital Punishment. And I go through the verses that speak of, one, the need for police, the need for an army, and also when you are allowed by God to defend yourself, even if it means taking another person's life, because God gives parameters in that way. So I would encourage you to listen to that sermon, uh, but Christ is not against that. And uh, now there was a time, too, when, you know, in terms of political kingdoms versus a spiritual kingdom, Jesus tells us, you know, we're not here to overthrow an earthly kingdom, so we don't live by the sword, but that's not at all contradictory to what he said in Luke's gospel when he said, sell your cloak and buy a sword. Anyway, I appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we've got another caller standing by, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello, go ahead. Good morning, Rick. Um, Good good morning, Pastor Brogy. My question is based on Exodus 4, um, chapter 4, verses 21 to 26. Um. Specifically in verse 24, when it says, The Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Who is he referring to in this verse or in this passage? Was God going to put Moses to death? It's a great question. So let me let me just turn there. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, and I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you sh- uh, but uh, you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now, here's the immediate context of the question that you are asking. And again, it's a very important question. Now, it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. Um, so, uh, and then it says, so let him atone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me because of the circumcision. So here's, here's just the broad context. Moses had failed to do something that God had specifically commanded. It went back to the time of Abraham. Abraham, of course, and his men were the first generation of men to be circumcised, even as adults. And then he dictated after that all the children on the eighth day. And so he had failed to circumcise one of his sons back in Midian. And so Zipporah's act here was an act of redemption. Um, The blood of the little boy 
that was basically carried out through that circumcision process restored Moses in back into a right relationship with the Lord. And, and in one sense, it, it because of that, it, it saved their marriage. And so he was a, uh, like a, a, a new bride. She was like a new bride and he was a bridegroom of blood. So, um, again, you know, God dictated this little small bloody rite that we don't really think much of, but it's important to every Jew, even in our day, this rite of circumcision. Uh, every Jewish uh, practicing Jew practices it on his son on the eighth day. And so the circumcision of Moses' son, and we don't know which one it was, either Gershom or Eleazar, it may seem strange, but uh, his failure to do that was going to result in judgment from God. And it was a very serious judgment. It would have cost him his life. And so Zipporah understood what should have been done, uh, why maybe she hadn't encouraged her husband to carry out this right, you know, ages before, we're, we're not told. But uh, she certainly understood the implications of his disobedience, and so she wastes no time at all and immediately, um, you know, does what needs to be done. And why the eighth day? Uh, there's even a medical reason for the eighth day. And, and I actually have a sermon on circumcision, if you're interested in it. Uh, in my series on Romans, if you go to Romans chapter 9 uh, and listen to Romans 9, you will uh, hear specifically all that God says about circumcision and even its rite of blood and how, uh, how it had uh, great prophetic implications of the ultimate shed blood. I know it's somewhat of a mysterious event, but it just seems that, you know, God is confronting Moses in the strongest possible way because he had not done what he should have done. And God didn't take this lightly because this is what set the Jews apart. They set aside every little boy who would potentially even be ahead of his home because God causes most people to to be married, and it set him aside as a spiritual leader and set aside him from all the nations of the world where other men were not circumcised. Uh, it set them apart as a unique people, and a unique people who understood that the life is in the blood, and even the organ that is circumcised is a life organ. And so God had communicated in so many different ways and in so many different expressions uh, of the need uh, specifically uh, for circumcision to take place. Anyway, that's a great question. I appreciate it. Let's go on to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Henry from Beaufort wants to know, regarding Mark six eleven, in the King James Version, it says it should be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the Day of Judgment, but the NASB doesn't have that text. Why is that? It's a, it's a good question. Um, let me just say that there are certain verses in the Bible. We, we, the challenge that we have is we have a, 101% of the Bible. And by that I mean there are some places that you have scribal notes and people wonder, well, was that part of the original or was that added by a scribe? And sometimes people attack the credibility of the newer translations based on a verse like this. And they would say, well, you know, wh- what happened to, you know, the, the note on, 
on, um, you know, that God gives in, that's found in the King James that uses what's typically referred to as the majority text, but it's not found here in uh, the New American Standard. Well, let me just say, there's a, there was a copying process that people would go through when they would copy Scripture. And one dimension of copying God's Word is you would uh, sit down and you would have a sheet of paper. It was called papyri. Uh, sometimes it was done on an animal's skin. But by this time in recorded history, when the New Testament's being penned, they're using papyri. And it's uh, basically it's a reed paper where they would take reeds from the marsh and they'd blend them together and they'd make somewhat of a rough kind of hewn paper. But in God's providence, it was a great paper because it was virtually indestructible and it would last for centuries. And that's why we have some of these old ancient Dead Sea Scrolls. And when you copied on that piece of papyri, you copied from end to end. There was no uh, breaks, so to speak, in the uh, words. There was no spaces in the words. There was no punctuation of the words. And when, uh, so like if you open my Bible, I have my Bible open to the text that you have here in question. There's uh, white margins on both sides. There were no such white margins in biblical days. It was just all solid text from end to end to end. And that's important to realize because what could happen at times is that, let's say I had a page of Scripture and you wanted to come and copy my page of Scripture. You would um, copy it in the same manner from end to end, but unlike in my Bible where maybe I'll put a note out in the margin, you would put your notes into the body of the text. And if you memorize the passage of Scripture too, it's very possible that in your copy that was not done by an official scribe, but was done just by a person who wanted a copy of Scripture, you might include your own notes. And so there were occasions in the ancient manuscripts that were left to us where you have what's called a scribal note. And then, of course, those who are involved in the process, it's called textual criticism. Uh, They're not criticizing the Bible. They're simply asking what was part of the original and what part was a scribal note. And so there are some places, even in the majority text, where they made a decision. They said that was clearly a scribal note. That was what someone put as commentary to themselves, but not part of the original. And so when you come here to this text in Mark's gospel, there is uh, this specific statement in Mark 6 and verse 11 that, and let me just read it here out of the NASB. He says um, um, in verse 11 of the NASB, any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shall, you shall shake the dust, dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. And what's interesting, though, is then what follows in the King James does not follow in the New American Standard. And the argument is, is that was a scribal note that someone put on. But it changes nothing doctrinally because that same scribal note, so to speak, appears three other times in every translation, King James, ESV, whatever scroll that someone may have been using. And so, for instance, if I turn over to Matthew chapter 11 
And in verse 25, he, he, gives, he gives a specific warning, or Matthew, uh, excuse me, it's 10. Here it is, verse 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So uh, that immediately follows what we just read in Mark's gospel. Whoever does not receive you, nor your words, uh, you know, shake the dust off your feet. And then in Matthew's account, he adds, truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah and the day of judgment than for that city. By the way, that's repeated again a few chapters later in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 24, nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So my point in registering this in your mind, and there's also another passage like it in Luke's gospel, is that it doesn't change anything doctrinally. So what could have been happening? Well, remember, the way that a lot of believers in the early centuries assimilated Scripture was through memorization. And so this was obviously a very important concept when you went out and preached, and Jesus gave specific instructions as to what you should do. And if you're welcomed, you're to bless the home. If you're not welcomed, you were literally, you, you took the sandals off and you, you shook them as a symbol of judgment. And then there was this warning for people who treat lightly the revelation of God. It will be more tolerable for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for those who treated lightly the revelation of God. And so you would have memorized that because you would have understood it was your common responsibility as a first century Christian to share Christ. Now, most Christians, unfortunately, today don't understand it in that way. They think, well, you know, that's something we pay the preacher to do. And if I do it, maybe I've conferred a favor on God, but it's not necessarily my responsibility. They thought quite differently. They knew it was every born-again Christian's responsibility to share Christ, whether they were gifted or not, whether they were in full-time ministry or not. It was all of our responsibility. And so this was a common instructional passage that Christians literally memorized. And so if I were a scribe and I wanted to get this passage from Mark chapter 6, and I wanted my own copy, maybe I wanted the teaching of Christ in Nazareth, which was really a powerful passage because this happens a year after Christ is initially rejected and they want to throw him off a cliff. He comes back a year later. They're not ready to throw him off a cliff. Too much has happened in his life and ministry at this point, but they're still unrepentant. They're still hard of heart. They're still unresponsive in a lot of ways. And so this would be a section of Scripture that a lot of Christians would have wanted to happen. And if you copied it, you might then put your note that you knew happened in really three parallel texts that it will be more tolerable for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. But I say all this to say that it changes nothing doctrinally. So there are some people who want to attack the newer translations of the Bible, like the NASB and the ESV, and they say, well, they leave out verses and Typically, uh, the argument they use is they, they leave out, you know, the blood of Christ. And actually, they, they don't. Uh, if you um, look carefully, you discover that there are 98 times that the word blood appears in the New Testament in, in the King James Version, and it appears 97 times in the New American Standard Time. So there's one verse where it doesn't appear uh, in the book of Colossians chapter 1, I think it's the 14th verse, but a few verses later in verse 20 of that chapter, it does appear where he speaks of the blood of his cross. And so people create these straw men, all these new translations, they take all the blood out of the Bible and 
Actually, they don't. Um, but again, you had a scribal note there. I think in Colossians, and the argument is, is that the older manuscripts that were closer to the original before a lot of uh, personal copies would have begun uh, in the process where people, where paper became more available and people would create their own copies, that the older manuscripts were closest to the original. They were the most scarce. There were fewer of them, that those were the most accurate. So I hope that helps. It, it, um, by the way, this is an important issue because I covered in a course I taught on bibliology. And I think it's in section six of that course where I deal with an evaluation of English translations. And in that, I, I deal with, yeah, there are some English translations in the history of the church uh, since we've had the English language that haven't been faithful to God's Word. And then there are different kinds of English translations even in our day, dynamic equivalent, formal equivalent, um, and some that are not Greek equivalent at all, like the New Age translation that the uh, Jehovah's Witness use. But in that section, uh, section six of Bibliology, I cover uh, some of these issues of verses that are quote-unquote missing and how they change nothing. And while they may be missing, like the word blood is, again, is found 97 times in the NES, 98 in the King James, it changes nothing. And uh, I deal with the straw arguments that are made sometimes to discredit other, discredit other English translations. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we have a live caller standing by, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the air. Good morning, Pastor Carl and Rick. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Good. Well, my question is about the Roman Catholics. Um, a sub- they've come up, and do they are they really Christians? I mean, there always seems like, I know Mass is a very important part of their faith, and do they believe in basically the five tenets of faith that Protestants believe in? And how's their Catholic Bible? Is it like the Protestant Bible at all? Well, that's a great question. There's really several questions. Uh, in terms of the canonicity of Scripture, we have 66 books in our Bible. They have 73. So there were some books that were written between the Old and the New Testament at 400 years when there was no prophet in Israel that are not included in the Protestant Bible. Though I should say in the first edition of the 1611 translation of the Bible, uh, those books were included, but there was a note that the authors uh, put, or the translators put in the preface of the original King James Bible, saying that these are books that we do not believe are inspired, but we are including them here in this edition, because we feel like they shed some historical light on some of the events that took place during those 400 years of silence. And actually, some of the things they record are very helpful, because the prophet Daniel, for instance, predicted that there would be certain particular um, prophecies that would be fulfilled during the intertestament age. And not only do the apocryphal books record the fulfillment of some of Daniel's prophecies, which, by the way, uh, totally discredits uh, those who say that Daniel was a second century A.D. forgery, but not really done by Daniel, uh, because there were prophecies even in the short run that were fulfilled, and many that would be fulfilled even later. But lay that aside for just a moment. 
Um, there are not only some different books, and again, I have a course on bibliology in one of the sections, I think it's section three, called The Canonicity of the Bible, and I go through various tests of why we selected the books that we selected. Why do we have just 66 books and not more? For instance, when the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, they never once quote the apocryphal books. They quote the other books of the Bible, but they don't quote the apocryphal books, and there's a reason for that. Um, But we didn't really determine. The Roman Catholic Church tells us that they gave us the Bible. They didn't give us the Bible. No one gave us the Bible but God. Uh, Now, people don't determine what's inspired and what's not, but they can recognize it, and there's certain traits that a true book of canonicity would have. Uh, it, if someone was a writer of God, he'd have to give a short-term prophecy that would be fulfilled. So like Jeremiah writes a whole book, and he writes prophecies that come all the way to the end of the age that will deal with the end of time, but he also gave short-term prophecies, like they would be carried to Babylon for 70 years, and at the end of 70 years, they'd be released. Isaiah predicts that uh, uh, that the name of the king who would release him would be a fellow by the name of Cyrus, and he writes that 150 years even before Cyrus is born, and there is such a king. So you had to um, demonstrate that you were a prophet of God. It was often confirmed by an act of God. It would always be consistent with previous revelation that was given. Uh, so, for instance, there are things that are taught in the apocryphal books that's not consistent with previous revelation, and with revelation that would come later through the New Testament, which the Roman Catholics acknowledge. For instance, uh, take prayer for the dead. Uh, That's something that God forbade in the Old Testament, and it's something that is impossible based on New Testament doctrine, yet it's taught in 2 Maccabees. In fact, the whole doctrine of purgatory and so forth is really built on some assumptions of some false doctrines that are taken out of uh, these historical books that were not part of the canonicity of Scripture. So, again, one of the greatest proofs, though, for why we just received just the the 39 books of the Old Testament is for the simple fact that those in those books only are quoted by Christ and the apostles. They never once quote the intertestament books. Not even in Jude, as some try to push, or in Second Peter too, they quote only the thirty-nine books of the Old Testament. Now, let me ask, respond to your first question: Are Roman Catholics Christians? And the answer is yes and no. There are many Roman Catholic Christians who are indeed true, genuine, born-again people. They have come to embrace Jesus as Lord. Uh, there are many who are not, just like. The same could be true of Protestants. There are many lost Protestants today. And then there are many who are born again. But clearly not all Roman Catholics are born again. And I would say that because of their doctrine that is contrary to some of the basic tenets of the New Testament, that there's a greater hurdle for some of them to get over. Now, some might take issue with me on that and say, well, I'm not sure how big the hurdle is compared to a liberal Protestant church. And there's some truth to that. I grew up in a Roman Catholic church. And in one respect, I'm grateful that I grew up in a church that at least believed in the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. 
uh, the physical resurrection. Uh, and there's a lot of truth that's taught in Roman Catholicism, but it's also mixed with error. So Roman Catholicism does justify salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Um, it, it denies that a person is saved solely on the basis of grace being, being the death and resurrection of Christ through faith. They teach that you merit grace, that through good works you earn grace, and in that fashion you're saved, and so they deny that you're saved by faith alone in Christ, that good works merit the grace, and so you help to earn your salvation. And that's just wrong. They confuse justification with sanctification. And that's what the whole Protestant Reformation was about. That's what um, Martin Luther debated when he tacked to the door of the church there in Wittenberg, Germany, the 95 assertions or theses of where the church had departed from biblical truth. Now, a lot of those theses deal with the subject I just raised a moment ago, purgatory based on the intertestament books. But he also addresses other issues as he will as his ministry progresses. And again, you can believe a lot of wrong things and still go to heaven. You could have a false view in the Pope and think that he is God's representative on the earth. He's not. He's no more God's representative than I am. He's not some unique representative. You could believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin. She was not. Her children are named in Scripture. You could believe that she was born without sin. She was not. She, her soul exalts in God, her Savior. She believed as a sinner she needed a Savior, and the only one who is immaculately conceived was the Lord Jesus. You could believe in the real presence at the Lord's table, that the elements are literally changed to the body and blood of Christ and still go to heaven. You can believe a lot of wrong things and go to heaven, but you cannot be wrong on justification by grace alone through faith alone. And the Roman Catholic Church teaches that. And so what ends up happening in practice? You have unregenerate people, people who are not recipients of a new birth. And so they're plagued with thousands of priests, not a few hundred, but thousands of priests across the United States and now in about seven or eight foreign countries that have been identified where you have all these leaders in their church who are guilty of abusing little boys and girls. It's very, very sad. It's very, very sad. But Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. Um, I was just reading the other day uh, of, of, of a particular pope. I'll just wait till I get to, uh, to our series. We're coming up with this issue, by the way, when we come to Revelation 17 and 18, because the Bible teaches that there's coming a one-world religion, and it's going to be... Uh, headquartered out of a particular city that has seven hills. So I'll wait till we get there when we get to Revelation 17. But this is an excellent question. But by the way, if this is an issue you care to study, the book I would recommend, it's still a classic. It's written by Lorraine Bettner, B-O-E-T-T-N-E-R. I believe that's how he spells it. It was written in the 1960s. It's been in continual print for, you know, a long time, obviously about 60 years, and for a book to make continual printing tells you usually it's helping people. Uh, There's about 30,000 books that are produced every year in evangelical presses. Only 1% make a second printing. But if a book is really helpful, uh, you know, the the publishers will say, well, let's print it again. They're not in in the business to lose money. But Bettner does an excellent job in his book. Uh, You could go to half.com. In fact, let me just go there for a second. I happen to have a laptop with me today because I I want Rick to do some work on it. And 
Uh, if you go to half.com, which is the used book side of eBay, and I type in Lorraine Bettner, um, I can probably find that book. Uh, yeah, here it is. Uh, it's right here, Lorraine Bettner. And if you buy it new, it's $35 here. They've got a copy for $1.95 plus shipping. So um, that might be a good book to get on Roman Catholicism. And it will really help you. It goes through point by point. Here's what the church says. Here's what God says. But again, we can sometimes get into the trap of dealing with people that we're witnessing to who are Roman Catholic and get off on side issues like the Pope and Mary and all this stuff. Um, Don't go there if you don't have to. Stick to the gospel, because if you can help someone understand the gospel and the Holy Spirit's your helper who will serve with you, then they will see the truth, and when they're born again, then they receive the mind of Christ, and God will begin to settle these other issues in their thinking, and they'll begin to see the error. So, Roman Catholics, they believe a lot of good things about Jesus. They believe he's fully God, fully man, that he was dead on a cross and buried and physically, literally raised from the dead. Some of those statements I just said are are more commendable than what some liberal Protestant churches believe in our day. But they do deny salvation by grace alone through faith alone, and you can't be wrong on that issue. So focus on that as you do evangelism. But if you want to really study the topic Get Lorraine Bettner's book. It's still a classic work that that is available. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible Line, a reminder, you can always listen to our Bible Line archives if you don't get your whole question answered or didn't catch it all, like the gentleman who wanted to know whether Jesus carried a weapon. He can go to our website at uh, TBL at, uh, uh, I'm sorry, at WAGP.net and just click on TBL, the Bible Line Archives, and you can listen to those answers. We've got another live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible Line. Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Can I ask two questions? Go ahead. The first question, can you explain John 10.34 and Psalm 82.6 when it says, Ye are God's? What sure. does that mean? All right. John and ten thirty four. the second question whoa, whoa. is, can you explain the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge? Okay. Now, I didn't hear the second verse. I heard John ten thirty four. What was the other verse? Psalm 82, 6. Oh, oh the reference. Yes, yeah, from where it's taken. Sure. Okay. So this is an interesting verse, and it's an interesting verse when you consider the ministry of Christ. When you get to John chapter 10, you're coming towards the end of Christ's ministry. Uh, When Lazarus is raised from the dead in John 11, we're about two weeks from the crucifixion. Most people, when they stop and pause and think about the Gospels and how they actually divide up and the portion that is devoted to um, uh, the, the final days of Christ's life, uh, it's really pretty powerful. So in John 10, in the context, beginning in verse 22, he's at what's called the Feast of Dedication that took place at Jerusalem. It's it's interesting because the Feast of Dedication is also called the, the Feast of Lights or what we, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in modern Hebrew usually refer to as Hanukkah. Uh, and this, of course, goes back to a time between the two testaments where uh, a, by, a brother by the name of uh, Jacob Maccabean 
God used them in a powerful way to uh, recapture the temple and just some miracles that took place. And, and it's recorded in secular history. But Jesus, I think as much as anything, though this is not a feast that God dictated that they should um, honor in uh, observe, because this is not one of the seven feasts that God gave under the Mosaic law. Uh, it's still being all things to all men. It was kind of a celebration. It would be kind of like uh, the American Thanksgiving. It's a great thing. We're supposed to give thanks to God for his goodness and kindness to us. Um, but most of the time people don't anymore, but it's a good thing to do in Christ being all things to all men. If I can borrow Paul's principle that I might win some, uh, this is just what he is accomplishing on this occasion. So Jesus, uh, again, is speaking about true believers, and he said uh, that they did not believe in my Father's name. And then he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give, because it's not earned. Salvation is given. I give eternal life to them. It's the gift of God. And the promise is they'll never perish. You, you can't lose eternal life, and no one will ever snatch them, he says, out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And then he makes this powerful statement that leads up to the context of what you're asking. I and the father are one. Um, We are of the same nature. We are a unity. And this is a clear, uh, definitive statement of Christ's own deity. So it says here, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of these are you stoning me? And the Jews asked, for, uh, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And so, by the way, anyone who ever tells you that Jesus did not claim to be God has not read the Scripture very well. Are you the Son of God? I am. Specifically, definitively, to Caiaphas. This is one of many passages where Jesus not only proves, demonstrates, and shows that he's more than a man, but the God-man, but here's a direct affirmation, I and the Father are one. And that's how the Jews understood it. That's why they picked up stones. So Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law? And he's quoting from the book of Exodus and also a reference here to the Psalm, Psalm 82, 6. And you can bleed both of these verses together. Uh, But he understood that they definitely knew the Torah. And they certainly knew the Psalms because the Psalms were sung. And there's something about a song that is easy to memorize. You try to get someone to memorize a verse of Scripture and they struggle. You put it to a song and they've got it by heart in a couple minutes. So remember, the Psalms were sung in all different kinds of occasions. And they would often sing these psalms. And even Psalm 86, that was associated with being sung, according to one uh, rabbinical source at the Feast of Dedication, which is what Christ is celebrating. So for him to draw from this particular psalm, he's drawing right from their memory and from a song that would have been sung at the Feast of Dedication. So Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, uh, 
though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So the religious leaders, you know, they're surrounding Christ. They've got rocks in their hands to stone him. And Jesus doesn't panic. He doesn't run. Uh, he, he stops them with a verse of Scripture that is alive. The Word of God is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. And he educates the rabbis, um, you know, in terms of what they should think. He rebutes their charge of blasphemy by means of simply quoting this verse from Psalm 82. The judges in Psalm 82, that's what he's referring to. They're called gods, not because the Bible is affirming that they were um, deity. Exodus 21 and the uh, Ten Commandments, again in Exodus 22, uh, God gives some in the Decalogue in Exodus 20 that, you know, there's only one God whom we worship. Yet the word Elohim, uh, it's in the plural gods, is used of earthly judges. And so Jesus basically reasons if, if God gave these unjust judges the title of gods, which he did, then why do you consider it blasphemy if I'm calling myself the Son of God in light of the miracles and the works that I'm doing. If you can't just receive the title and the simple statement, just look at the works. And why would he point them to the works? Because the works that he was doing, the miracles that he was doing, were shouting that he was the Messiah. Because Isaiah uh, and a number of prophets from the Old Testament predicted that there would be certain miracles that Messiah would do. He'd open up blind eyes. He'd unstop deaf ears. No one had done that. Even the miracles that were done in the Old Testament, those two alone, no one had ever done before. And so Jesus is doing a whole range of miracles, and they shout that he is Lord. So uh, it's a simple argument. Listen, you guys use the title every day, but if you can't receive the title that I'm using of myself, just stop and pause and look at the miracles that I am doing and the miracles in and of themselves should so show that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? It's a, it's a great question. I really appreciate it. Let's, <clears throat> let's go to the next one. Sorry, I got a little bit of a cold today. but All right, 843-525-1859. Again, if you have a question on today's Bible line, and our next caller would like to know what Scripture says about pastors evaluating other pastors' messages. For example, when Pastor Brogy goes on vacation or is out of town, and here's another pastor give a message, uh, is Pastor Brogy, who may be better versed in Scripture, called to correct him if something is scripturally incorrect? In a way, are pastors called to evaluate each other? Well, uh, yes and no. Um, you need to be careful here because sometimes uh, people will make judgments over a pastor and what we would consider a secondary doctrine or maybe the application of a verse that is not specifically uh, affirmed in Scripture, there are there are some things that are non-negotiable. So if someone were to get in my pulpit and just give some blatant error, then um, I would have a responsibility to guard the flock, to protect the sheep, I don't care who it was, um, and correct that. So with that said, you know, it's also easy to be misunderstood. I've had people... Uh, say about me things that I know I didn't say. Um, 
there was at one time I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ and uh, I had written some follow-up material that is now was published by them and is used in a lot of different venues. <laughs> and in a meeting with all these leaders, someone stood up and said, well, Carl Brogy doesn't even believe in the doctrine of eternal security. And one of the other national leaders who is a close friend of mine says, well, you obviously don't know Carl Brogy because he affirms the doctrine of eternal security like few people I know. And so sometimes, you know, people will hear something, but they've been daydreaming and maybe they haven't heard it in context. Rick could actually take the audio saw of this station. An audio saw is you, you could take a sermon and you could literally change words around. You could, Rick could have me speaking absolute heresy. And so uh, with that said, sometimes someone's daydreaming a little bit and they kind of wake up out of their little daydream and a pastor makes a statement and they've heard it out of the context and they assume that the pastor is preaching heresy. So I know I, I've heard you say the Bible says there is no God. That's right. It says that. And you could you could take that and bring it into a court of law and we say, we have it right here. Dr. Brogy says the Bible says there is no God. And if he played the rest of the tape, um, he would hear me say the fool has said in his heart there is no God. And so verses sometimes are taken out of context, but more often than not, people hear things out of context because they're not really paying close attention. So again, there there are some issues that are secondary issues uh, that people might debate on that are not issues of orthodoxy or a test of you know whether someone is qualified to be a pastor. But if a pastor does stand up in the church, again, if you have a problem with your brother, what do you do? You go and speak to your brother, and uh, you go sp- talk to him directly, and you say, "Hey, listen, I heard you say such and such is." Is that what you really meant? And if he said, yeah, that's exactly what I meant, and you know it to be absolutely against what the Scripture says, then indeed you would have a responsibility to correct them. So, for instance, you have Priscilla and Aquila who, um, you know, meet a fellow by the name of Apollos, and Apollos is preaching, but he's not preaching it absolutely correctly. Uh, Apollos had no doubt been in uh, Israel for one of the feasts and heard certain truths about the Messiah's coming and obviously didn't know that that had actually been fulfilled, that the one John the Baptist had been preaching of had actually come. And so uh, Aquila and Priscilla pull him alongside and they say, well, actually what you're preaching is an incomplete message. And the one that you are preaching about actually now has come, and he has fulfilled these prophecies, and he totally receives that, and he continues to preach with power. Uh, the principle could be echoed again in uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, where you have what we call the uh, spiritual gift section of the book of Corinthians. And there he's speaking about prophets, and he mentions that the spirits of prophets are subject to other prophets. In other words, when a prophet stood up, and remember the context, this is a a day when the Bible is just beginning to be written, and people would stand up with a word of prophecy, and they would say, thus saith the Lord. And so um, it was essential that when someone said that, 
that it was indeed a word from the Lord, that it was not just something that someone made up. And, you know, people say, well, I got a word of prophecy for you. Well, I don't need a word of prophecy from you because all the prophecy that God has ever spoken is complete. And, you know, I I don't need anything new. But a prophet was to basically examine another prophet and let everything be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And so, again, this is at a time when the Bible is still being written, and they needed to make sure that what was being said was absolutely accurate, and so they were subject to one another. That's evaluation is what I'm trying to say. That that involves some specific evaluation that needs to happen uh, within the local assembly. So you could take those two examples with Aquila and Priscilla, and the one here from First Corinthians 14, and based on those, say, yeah, there's a, there's a need for that. And again, not to mention that if someone is in gross error, they should be corrected. And sometimes they're in gross error because they are false teachers. And false teachers need to be exhorted to the truth. And some are false teachers, not because they grew up in a church with false teaching, but they grew up in a church where they heard the truth and they rejected the truth, and so they ended up believing a lie. And that can happen just as well. About about a year or so ago, I was in a gas station, and I went to pay my credit card, and the fellow there behind the counter said, you're Pastor Carl. And I said, yeah, I am. And uh, the store was empty, and it was just kind of a brief, quiet moment. He said, I knew your voice. He said, I've, I've wanted to actually come by and, and meet you. He said, I was a pastor of a church here in town and for a number of years, and I started listening to you on the radio, and I became a Christian. And I said, you did? He said, yeah. And he said, I was just so off in my theology. He said, I was teaching people that you became a Christian by being baptized. And he said, I just realized what a false you know, misrepresentation that was of God's truth. I said, well, you're a pastor now? He said, no. He said, I I realize I'm not qualified to be. I need to grow in Christ, but my objective is to become a pastor again. I said, well, that's wonderful. And that's actually a very wise move you made because God's word teaches that not a new convert is to fill the office of pastor lest he be conceited. Um, so my point is there's different kinds of false teachers and there's someone who can have a wrong doctrine, but not necessarily be a false teacher. Uh, they're, they're just off in an area and you try to get them to kind of rethink it through. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next Very good. We had a caller from Massachusetts who would like to know what are some of your favorite books to read? Uh, Books of the Bible or, um, I believe other uh, books other than the Bible. Well, I'll tell you, uh, someone just gave me a book about 10 days ago, and I shouldn't have taken it from her, but there was a whole line of people behind her, and I didn't want to go into explanation and say, oh, I want you to read this book. I wrote it, and I have to give it back to her because I, I realize I'm not going to read this book. It's not that it's, it's probably the most wonderful novel in the world, but I just don't have time for it. So when you come into Carl Brogy's study and you want to know what I'm reading— it's usually, A, the book of the Bible I'm preparing on uh, in my exposition, or it's books that I am reading and studying in reference to my personal quiet time. So, like, for instance, in my quiet times, I, I took a break from Matthew, and I've been studying the prophet Zechariah. 
And so I have a number of commentaries, about 10 commentaries on Zechariah that I've been studying. You say you need commentaries? Well, yeah, I, I think that we all do. We can all learn from other people. Uh, sometimes people say, well, you know, I don't read the commentaries. I just let God speak to me. And what they're really saying is, well, God can speak to me, but he can't speak to anyone else. God can speak to any of his servants. Now, I'm grateful for the training I have because it was in the original languages and the seminary I attended. They, their goal was to equip you so that you could write commentaries. And I really actually have about 12 commentaries that I've written. I've never published them, but I've written them over the years. Maybe someday, if the Lord will lead me, I will publish them. But right now I'm studying the book of Revelation, teaching that on Sunday morning, and I have about 25 different commentaries. Now, if you ask me which one I like, probably the ones I like the best, a lot of people couldn't read unless they read Greek because there's is actually as much Greek on the printed page as there is English. Um, so they're what we would call a critical commentary. Um, but honestly, I don't have that much time for what you would consider like novels and things like that. Sometimes when I go on vacation, uh, there'll be a book that I'll read that um, I've wanted to, you know, read because it has, it's usually a theological book and it's commentary. I read periodicals. I read like Bibliotheca Sacra, which is a journal that I've subscribed to since 1978. Uh, It comes out four times a year. It deals with difficult theological issues. I've read that for, you know, almost 40 years now. Um, But occasionally, I'm reading right now a book that's written um, by Alan Dershowitz. Uh, It's called um, uh, Boycott, Divest, and uh, the BDS movement, this movement of anti-Semitic thinking against uh, the people of Israel, Boycott, Divest, and Sanction. So he just wrote a book. He's not a Christian. He's a Jewish man, actually pretty liberal in his viewpoint. But he does an excellent job in really showing that the BDS movement is rooted in anti-Semitism. And his concern is that it's a huge movement across college campuses in America where young people are taught to basically hate Israel by boycotting, divesting investments and sanctioning Uh, them as a people and as a nation. So it's kind of sad. I'm also reading a book right now on the history of Israel written by a Jewish man from Jerusalem. That's an excellent read. Um, It's not written by a Christian, but his research is very, very, very excellent. And so, um, but I don't have time for, you know, if you ask me if I'm reading a book on fishing or hunting, it's not that I wouldn't like to. I just, I just don't have time. Anyway, Uh, Thank you for being with us today. We're glad for another Bible line. If you didn't get your question, God willing, there's another week and another Tuesday. Um, Last Tuesday, I was not here because of a funeral, but assuming there's no funerals next Tuesday, I'm planning to be here, and I hope you can be here with us. 